quite honestly, the thing that really gets to me the most is when people actually just say thank you. They they just acknowledge, hey, we know you're working on the front line. We really appreciate the work that you do. Thank you. And that means to me as much as anything else. Hi, and welcome to Conversations Beneath the Cupola, a Gettysburg College podcast. I'm Bob Giuliano, president of the college and your host. If you've listened to recent episodes of this podcast, you know that we've been trying to make sense of the significant changes that the pandemic has brought to the way we live and work. We've benefited from the expertise of members of the Gettysburg College faculty who have offered thoughts about the political, economic, health-related, and social impact of the outbreak. Today, we move from the academy to one of the front lines, the delivery of healthcare. We're privileged to be joined by Melissa Zook, a 1994 Gettysburg graduate who works as a family practice physician in rural Kentucky. Melissa is board certified in family medicine, addiction medicine, and infectious disease, and she's particularly interested in providing a safe haven for LGBTQ patients and treating families caught in the addiction crisis. She works in systems that have already been under severe stress given regional poverty and which now have the added burden of the pandemic with which to contend. Melissa, thank you. Um, as I think you know, I'm in my first year at the college, and one of the themes that's really been important to me, and I think really reflects the heritage of the college, is the importance of this place, graduating students who are going to go out there into the world and have an impact. You so much embody that spirit of the college by your work as a physician in a rural, poor, and underserved community. So maybe that's the place to start this conversation as a means of context setting. But what led you first down the path of wanting to be a doctor, but then more specifically, a doctor in the setting in which you're practicing? Well, I had a, uh, I graduated in, um, in May of 1994, not really quite sure what I wanted to do with my life. I knew I wanted to do something that made a difference in the world, but I didn't know exactly what that looked like. And I actually went to my family doctor and had a very profound conversation. He said, oh, you should go to medical school. You'd be great. And I was like, well, I'm, I'm not smart enough. I'm, I wasn't a math and science person. And I'm, he's like, you can do it. And it was actually something I had really wanted to do as a kid. I, I loved MASH. I loved Doc Baker from Little House on the Prairie, which no one might, you know, younger than me knows. But um and so I thought about it and I was like, I really think I, I think I need to try. And so it took me about two years of education between Gettysburg and getting into medical school. But it was one of those decisions that once the decision was made, every door just seemed to just seemed to open. It just it just I think it was meant to be. And I got to Kentucky. Um, the after I graduated from Gettysburg, the first year I did a fellowship through the Congressional uh, Hunger Center looking at hunger in America. And so I spent six months in a field placement in Eastern Kentucky, and then six months in Washington, DC, working um, on food uh, policy and legislation. So with the USDA on food stamps, the school lunch program, things like that. And I fell in love with Kentucky when I did that. And so when I went to medical school, I had a National Health Service Corps scholarship. So in exchange for my education, the Department of Health and Human Services paid for most of my education. And um, I came back to Kentucky through that program and my uh, commitment was for four years. Um, and then I stayed a total of um, eight years at my first job, that first job. And then I moved to a practice in the neighboring county about eight years ago, I guess. And so it's been 16 years in Kentucky and probably yeah. not what the 18 year old version of you thought you were gonna do at least when you walked through the gates of Gettysburg, it sounds like at least. Yes, not at all. Did 
So did Gettysburg end up influencing your arc at all? It certainly doesn't sound like it did intellectually per se, but has it had an impact in the way that you practice or the way you think about the relationship that you have with your patients? Absolutely. I, I was very involved. Uh, the Center for Public Service came about uh, when I was a student there, and I was very involved in activities with the Center for Public Service. And also, I uh, did a study abroad program, and um, the and I did a program through uh, Augsburg College, which was an immersion program in Mexico. And um, so very different than most study abroad programs. Um, you know, we started in, in on the border um, at, a bu at the bus station in Nogales. They gave us $100 and said, we'll see you a week in Cuernavaca. Good luck. And so it was very, um, it, we lived with regular families. We picked coffee beans. We followed uh, workers around to see what they did. So it was a very... Uh, very different kind of program. And that really was what got my heart going for social justice. And then the CPS um, sort of helped me to, and the work I did with, with CPS really helped to move that forward. And so I knew that I wanted to do something like that. Um, and actually as a history major, it, it's been very helpful to me in learning how to interview patients, doing oral histories with Dr. Berkner um, mm -hmm. has really transitioned very easily into interviewing patients. And also, you know, learning how to do good research is helpful and good writing is helpful in any career. Wow, that's a great answer. Um, I think uh, Michael Berkner is smiling. We'll be smiling when he when he hears that. Um, so set this set the stage a little bit as, uh, for us, if you would, about sort of pre coronavirus, uh, what your practice looks like. Um, help us understand a little bit better the geography and the socioeconomic realities that you have confronted through your uh, work in rural Kentucky. Sure. So the, the counties that I serve are among the poorest in the nation. If you look at county rankings in terms of um, socioeconomic factors or health factors, the probably 15 county area where my patients come from generally fall in the bottom 50 and some of them are in the bottom 10 in this country. So very, very poor people, uh, very isolated. Uh, people have grown up living in their hollers with multiple generations of the same family and very, um, very underserved. So the first county that I worked in for the first eight years did not have a hospital, did not have any women's services, any uh, pregnancy services. So our office actually had a little emergency room and I, in between seeing patients, would see whoever kind of came into our, whoever rang the doorbell that day and came into our little emergency room. So anything from heart failure to heart attacks, to setting fractures, to um, pulling out fish hooks, things that happened in the country. And as my practice has evolved, um, I now do a lot more addiction medicine because, you know, the opiate crisis has really centered in Eastern Kentucky. And so I do a lot of addiction medicine and I do it in the context of helping young families. I, I see a lot of generations of the same family with addiction and I see lots of young moms. So my goal is to do well visits with babies at the same time I'm doing adult visits for addiction. Um, and I'm trying to do total healthcare as a family doctor. So I might also treat their diabetes or their lung disease from smoking so that they can come to one place. And it helps to, my goal is to help keep families together, help them being broken apart by going to jail on drug charges or dealing with health and human services and losing custody of their children. Um, so by seeing everybody and working with everybody, it enables me to educate people a little bit more. Um, I know how the babies are doing, how good their parenting skills are. It really makes a big difference. And then I also doing, uh, started doing HIV care about five or six years ago, and I'm the only HIV provider in the eastern half of the state. Wow. Well, and it sounds like you're doing this in a resource-starved context, 
but also where the necessity of trust matters enormously. And so that as you take care of the whole family, you are re really beginning to create that bond of trust that will permit, um, I suspect, these families to accept your advice as best they can. I think also the the thing that people tell me all the time is I'm just a regular person. I'm not one of those, you know, stuck up doctors. And so, and again, I think that comes somewhat from, you know, the background of learning to do oral histories and talking to people. I just think people have a story, no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, everyone has a story to tell. And I'll tell you some of these stories, they blow me away. The, what people have suffered and been through before they end up at my door. And, you know, people will tell me, well, you're the first doctor who ever sat down in the room with me. And the first doctor who ever shook my hand or, you know, the first doctor who ever treated me with any sort of respect, who didn't just tell me to get out and leave. And that makes all the difference in the world. It's just, it's just humanity and good manners. And my mom and dad taught me that. Well, that's interesting. We could have a longer conversation, I think, about the changes in the healthcare delivery system generally uh, and how it's become more impersonal because of the economics of it. But let's not go there instead. Let's talk about, so you gave us a sense of what your practice has been like. We're mm -hmm. now in the midst of this pandemic. Has it changed? Has it affected um, your counties in a significant way? And how do you see it, um, uh, again, impacting the way in which you're delivering care to your patients? It really, I'm sure, I know you talked to some other folks, it really is an evolving thing. Literally every day we're updating our policies for infection control, for how we triage patients, for who we allowed to come in. We've gone to a lot of telephone health or telephone calls and uh, video calls with our patients through Zoom for those who can do it. Um, we see, um, you know, I might usually see 25 to 30 people a day in the office, and now I might see a total of three or four. Um, we're trying to keep people home. We're delaying care. We're delaying, you know, laboratory assessments, um, all preventive services like mammograms, preventive colonoscopies. All of those things are sort of being indefinitely delayed. Um, you know, people will call all the time and say, well, I'm, I'm sick. And it's, it's, you can't assess somebody very well over the phone. It's very frustrating. Even if they have access to a computer, which most of my patients don't, it's very hard to figure out who's sick and who's not sick and how rapidly someone needs something um, because everything really is on lockdown. We haven't had too many cases of COVID. Um, we have a local nursing home that's been absolutely devastated by it. Um, but in terms of people who've been in the hospital and people who've been testing positive, it's, it's not high, but, um, but it really is, it's actually terrifying to people. And so they're getting the message that they need to stay home. And for the most part, they are. Well, and you said earlier, as you were describing your general practice, that um, part of what you try to do is connect to the families as a whole. And so you must be seeing um, social and other economic impacts that transcend the, the four corners of your delivery of medical care. Is that right? And if so, what are some of those consequences? One of the big ones really has been food insecurity. You know, it's the time of year where people's, uh, most of my patients keep very big gardens uh, that they that they really depend on. And at this time of the year, their winter, you know, what they put up for the winter to store and can is almost gone. And there's nothing that they can put in the ground yet. So that extra um, padding for food is gone. And, you know, most of my patients already live in what we call food deserts where it's hard to get access to fresh food. But with all the shortages, um, you know, people, the, the staple of the Kentucky diet is soup, beans, and cornbread, which is actually a fairly nutritious meal, but you can't get cornmeal. You can't get soup beans. You can't get rice. Um, you can't, a lot of places, you can't find a 50 pound bag of potatoes. So the food shortages are really hitting people uh, very hard. And the local food pantries have been very hit very hard. They've been out of food for a while. So that, that's been a very big one. 
Um, and then, of course, the people not working has also um, had a big impact. Even on our staff, we've had to furlough some staff for the uh, time being. And while the governor has done a really great job at trying to um, keep people safe, keep people home, they've expanded unemployment benefits. There's such there's such a flood of people applying for unemployment benefits that people are waiting weeks and weeks until they can get their checks. Um, and I think that experience is being felt elsewhere, not just mm -hmm. in Kentucky. Uh, and maybe you've begun to answer this, but obviously the federal government has devoted a lot of resources to the response to um, COVID-19. Have you seen any of that having an impact where you are? Unfortunately, not really, no. Um, you know, the, the money for small businesses ran out almost immediately. So the people, small businesses have not been able to benefit from that. Um, you know, we fortunately haven't needed things like the ventilators and a lot of the, the PPE. Um, so that's not been an issue, but the economic, the economic promises that people have been looking for really have not been able to reach Eastern Kentucky. Yeah. Um, and we'll see what happens with additional stimulus um, uh, proposals under evaluation. Um, so we've talked a little bit about the economic effects. Um, when a case does arise, do you have the resources to test and to respond appropriately? That's just starting to come about. We've just started expanding. Um, there, there's now a test site that's within about five miles of us. The Until last week, the, the closest test site was about 20 miles away. Um, and it would take seven to 10 days uh, for the test result to come back. Now with this new site that's just about five miles away, um, you can get a test. You can, uh, it's a drive-through testing service. So patients don't have to get out of their cars. I don't have to see them personally. I can interview them on the phone. And if I think that they qualify, they have to meet a list of criteria to qualify for the test. I can go ahead and order the test and send them over to the testing site. And now tests are coming back in 24 to 48 hours. So that's that's much more help, much helpful. And when you have you had a, a patient who has tested positive? Uh, we ha I have had one um, and I've had actually, no, that's not true. I've had I've had three uh, mostly related to the nursing home that I was telling you about that's yeah. been devastated by it. Uh, and does the state, does the area have resources to deal? I guess at the moment, you're not at the point where the system has been overwhelmed, though the system sounds pretty fragile to begin with. But um, does it have the resources to deal with cases as they do arise? At this point, we do because we don't have very many. Um, I would be very worried if it, you know, if, if we didn't have the social distancing and people didn't stay home and, and we didn't have the PPE that we do. Um, it, it would not take, but it would not take very many cases to overrun it. We have a very small ICU with just a few beds and just a few ventilators. And so we would absolutely not be able to care for more than the few patients that we've had. You know, Gettysburg, as you know, is in South Central Pennsylvania and has its rural aspects to it. It sounds like you're in a rural setting as well. Um, it's my sense that social distancing is a little bit easier in the more rural settings, but it has other impacts, including the possibility of isolation. What are you seeing there in the trade-off between the, the, the potential benefits of the uh, rural setting versus its costs? I think in one way, you know, we have a lot of families, a lot, a lot of uh, hidden homelessness in terms of a lot of families living together under one roof, multiple generations. And so um, in that way, it could be spread, except that mostly people don't go anywhere. They're used to being home. They're used to being far away from their neighbors or they're used to being in their cars and separated. So I think in that way, people aren't too, um, uh, too troubled by it. Although we do have a rural transportation service that has shut down uh, because of it, it's a, a little minibus. Yeah. And that's shut down. And that's been a big problem trying to get people transported back and forth to the available appointments that there are. 
That makes sense. Um, again, perhaps because you have not been as deeply immersed, thankfully, given the other stresses on the system with the coronavirus, you may not have a clear view on this, but you're the first practicing physician we've talked to. Uh, as you pay attention to the media accounts of the pandemic, from your perspective, do you see things that you wish were being covered differently or will you feel like the relevant information isn't really getting out there? I, I do think looking uh, from a state government point of view, I think the, the governments have done, uh, the governors have done a great job trying to educate people. I think um, in Kentucky, we've done a great job with our, our governor and our uh, state physician general. Um, I do think in general, they've done a good job at trying to get out the most accurate information with social distancing um, about what the risks are. You know, the thing is, it's such an evolving situation. We don't always know who the people who are at most risk. I do wish we could see a little bit more about some of the other impacts, you know, the other economic impacts, the other social impacts of the disease. But I think in terms of accurate medical information, it's it's been I, I don't think it's been overstated. Um, yeah, that seems right to me. And um one of the things we're recognizing as a college is that it is an evolving situation and we're trying as hard as we can to stay up to date with what the public health officials regard as the best information that one has about the arc of the virus because obviously as we think about what we're doing as a community um, that matters to us we're going to make decisions that are driven at least in significant part by the scientific information that we have available to us so one of the questions I've asked just about everybody I've interviewed, which I acknowledge, Melissa, is somewhat an unfair question because of the perspective borne by history, and we don't have much perspective yet because we're in the middle of this. But from your vantage point, as you think about the long-term consequences of the pandemic, what do you think they're gonna be? And will they be different, say, uh, where you are than they will be in uh, Gettysburg or in a big urban environment? You know, I've been I've been actually thinking about that question, and uh, you know, I I want to say that things will be different. I worry that people, you know, we tend to have a short memory, and I do worry that people are going to sort of once once quarantine is over, people are going to go back to their lives and kind of uh, forget all of this ever happened. Is is my fear, or you know, it will be very difficult to convince people to do this again if we have another um, another uh, round of this in the winter uh, next winter. Um, but my fear is that it will, it's not going to leave us, you know, MERS has stayed pretty much in the, in the Middle East and, you know, SARS sort of came and went. And so I'm, I'm worried though, that this is going to linger with us longer and it's going to, uh, I don't think until people are personally affected by it, which many people here have not been in terms of a loved one who's sick, I don't think that they're really going to understand um, just how dangerous this virus is. So let me then wrap this up, if I can, Melissa. Obviously, this is a challenging time for healthcare providers um, uh, across the globe. Um, and it's also a moment where we've seen people want to figure out how can they best acknowledge the sacrifices that healthcare providers are making, people having to deal with difficult choices of how do I treat my patients and then still go home and what risks am I presenting to my family? Um, do you have thoughts about, uh, again, from the front lines about the best ways that the rest of us can acknowledge the really remarkable work that healthcare providers are doing, living to the, the best of the profession about um, uh, putting the welfare of their patients first, 
how can we acknowledge that as we go about our lives and want to say thank you? Quite honestly, the thing that really gets to me the most is when people actually just say thank you. They they just acknowledge, hey, we know you're working on the front line. We really appreciate the work that you do. Thank you. And that means to me as much as anything else. And I think the other thing that really is would be very appreciated is just people really following our advice, doing the things that we suggest, you know, and if you can keep yourself healthy, that puts less work on me. So if you can, if you can stay home and you can take good care of yourself and, and you can social distance and that takes, that's less people that I have to worry about getting sick because I, I do worry about everyone, but um, I just, I just appreciate when people say thank you. Well, let's end with that. And I will leave you with um, just one other point. Um, there are challenges that colleges and universities are confronting as well as we try to figure out uh, how to navigate what is unprecedented in our lifetime, at least. And it will not surprise you, Melissa, given what you know about this place, uh, that the overwhelming um, sentiments that have been expressed to me uh, is simply one of thank you, which isn't really about me. It is a statement about the nature of this place and the fact that people care about one another and they are grateful for what everybody does for one another. So uh, your alma mater is quick to say thank you. And I will end by saying thank you to you for the work that you do, for the way in which you go about doing it. Um, as I started this podcast, I said that you embody the, the best of what we hope for in our alums. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to uh, uh, say hello to you today. Well, very lovely to meet you. Thank you very much. As our interview with Melissa Zook reflected, sometimes the most powerful thing we can do to one another is simply to say thank you. In that spirit, the women's volleyball team participated in what they called a week of gratitude on their Facebook and Instagram account. It really was a way to say thank you to the college personnel and faculty who are keeping the college and our students going through this time. One of the people who wrote in was Lizzie Kuhn, a graduate of the class of 2014, who, like Dr. Zook, is working on the front lines of the healthcare industry. She wrote, it has been such a whirlwind these past few weeks. On March 18th, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia was able to open up the first pediatric mobile COVID-19 testing site. It was amazing to work with such dedicated doctors, MAs, nurses, security officers, and facilities employees to implement this project on such short notice. Since then, we've been able to test children who are important carriers of the disease and get employees who are negative back to work. It's been inspiring to watch the medical community band together to respond to this health crisis, as well as to feel the love from the city of Philadelphia. Thank you, Lizzie, for what you're doing and to the entire community. Just say thank you to your loved ones and to the people who are helping you as we navigate these challenging times. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this conversation and want to be notified of future episodes, please subscribe to Conversations Beneath the Cupola by visiting gettysburg.edu or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a topic or suggestion for a future podcast, please email news at gettysburg.edu. Thank you, and until next time.